Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio in my living room is uh, the one, the only Thomas Drenz. Ooh, thanks for the very generous introduction, Dmitry. Yeah, <laughs> pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, this is exciting, man. I've wanted to get you on for a while, but you're a busy man. I, I feel like you have a million, million jobs in the hockey sphere. So <laughs> at least two, but uh, but thanks for having me, and thanks for providing the blue buck. Yes, um, not a sponsor of the show. Not a sponsor, but, but they should be. If and, they want uh, to send over some beer, we're, we're listening. <laughs> But no, I've become a dedicated listener, and I really admire the work you've done here. So it's it's truly a thrill to be on with you today. Oh, stop it. Um, okay, so <laughs> we're going to talk about the Canucks a little bit. And I say that fully acknowledging that a lot of people might have just instantly either turned, <laughs> turned this off or fast-forwarded. But uh, we've gotten a lot of kind of people asking, uh, can you talk about the Canucks a little bit? Because I feel like it's... There's nothing really worthwhile about their season this year, like in a vacuum. But if you view it as a big picture of what's happened to this franchise over the past like five years, it's really sort of like an undertold story, I feel like. Yeah, it's been a what was a slow decline into mediocrity from being an elite team has become a precipitous decline into a cellar dweller. And this is really the second time in three years that this team is going to be at the very bottom of the NHL uh, standings, right? Like with Mm -hmm. the very good lottery odds. And in looking at the big picture, this is a team that's sort of been caught in the middle, you know, in some ways. But that said, I was thinking about it today, and I think, you know, one of the things that they avoided was actually the worst-case scenario this season. Like, right. I don't know that I buy that the injuries sabotaged their playoff bid, but the injuries certainly sabotaged their ability to finish 10th last. Yes. And and now they're really going to be a bottom-five team uh, with decent lottery odds to find a pretty good player. And so in some ways, I almost think they got a little bit lucky in yeah. trying to thread the needle, as it were, and and compete while rebuilding. Uh, you know, by failing to be competitive for a variety of reasons, I think they've dodged a major bullet this year. Yeah, no, I mean, you definitely, the worst position you can be in is that sort of late 2000s Calgary Flames where you're just constantly just missing the playoffs, but you're (laughs) not really getting good players in the draft. And I don't know, like... uh, 
I don't want to put you on the spot here and make you look stupid by any means, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that before the season <laughs> we made a bet, a friendly gentleman's wager on whether the Canucks would make the playoffs or not. And I think it was actually over a steak dinner. And the caveat here is I'm, I'm a vegetarian, actually. So I wasn't even planning on cashing in on this bet. I was just so convinced that the Canucks weren't going to make the playoffs that it was... It was, uh, it yeah, was I'll, I'll get you some tea at the nom, <laughs> I suppose. But yeah, I mean, I think the lesson to take from that is yes. to, you know, catch me three or four beers yes. deep and uh, and suggest a bet. Yes. That's the well, lesson for all your listeners. I mean, they've been, they've been so bad this year. Like, I, I feel like the injuries thing is like, sure, they might have been a little bit better. But I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I've made a few notes. They're the fourth worst record in the league, dead last in goal differential. Only Devils score fewer goals and only the Senators give up more shots against. Like, that's pretty bad and pretty much any category you start by like the names beside them are either the Oilers or the Leafs and one of those teams is actively trying not to win and the other team is trying to win but that it, it's a whole another issue it's been really ugly and I think I was thinking about it today and I think the undertold story like people are talking a lot about how injuries resulted in young players being promoted above their pay grade and you know Bo Horvat being used as a elite shutdown center in his prime when that's clearly not a role he's capable right. of handling and and on and on but I think the undertold story of what's occurred with the Canucks this season is that, you know, in a early December, late November, Henrik Sedin sustained some sort of injury. We don't really know what it was. Right. He didn't miss games until Christmas time. Yeah. Returned briefly, got hammered by Mikhail Grabowski in Brooklyn, uh, you know, missed a few games before the All-Star break and has returned. But if you look at, you know, his minutes per game started to fall precipitously in early December and right. the underlying numbers, I mean, you know, we're looking at a 40-game stretch where the Sedin twins are under 50%. And, yes. I, you know, whether it's age, whether or not it's injuries, whether or not it's a combination of the two, and it probably is some sort of correlation of forces, Right. you know, what really fell out on the Canucks this year was the top end of their roster, which for years has actually been capable of hanging with the best of the league, even as the team got sabotaged by atrophying depth. Right. You know, with increasing frequency. And this year that, I think, changed. And, and all of a sudden, you know, so people are talking about, well, you know, these young players will be better for the experience they've had this year. And, you know, maybe the team's depth will be a little bit better. Maybe they can rebound quickly. At least Jim Benning was sort of making some of those points on uh, TSN 1040 right. uh, earlier today in Vancouver. And, you know, I look at it and I just think, man, that might be true, but only if the top end of this roster holds. And, you know, with what we've seen this year, with what we saw during the Tortorella season, can the Sedin twins sort of play at that level, 55% outscoring opponents, right. you know, two to one uh, over the course of a full 82 game season reliably going forward? And, you know, man, I think that's a really tough bet to make. Yeah. Well, it's a shame, right? Because I agree, you probably don't want to ask them to do all of that heavy lifting. But if in the right scenario, like if they had the support, there's no reason they, why they couldn't have like a, a Jager type season, right? Where they're mm -hmm. still like, well, we've talked about this for years now. It's like, yeah. when are the Sedins filing in a decline? And it's maybe their five on five numbers or defensive numbers will slip a little bit. But like they have the smarts and sort of these uh, inherent gifts in their game that's going right. to allow them to be good probably even approaching their 40s if they really actually want to keep playing right but yeah i mean you look at it when the canucks were still in a playoff spot at the end of november yeah before the you know brandon sutter injury had really uh, like wrecked yeah. havoc on the team and, and before they lost ham Hughes, which turned out to be just a mammoth loss like right. uh, way bigger than i would have anticipated at the time uh, you know before that uh, with chris tanov and henrik Sedin on the ice the canucks had outscored opponents 10 to 1 
you know, at that point in the season. And the, and the percentage, save percentage numbers, shooting percentage numbers weren't off the charts. I mean, there was a little higher than 100 in terms of their PDO. Yes. But, but not out, outrageously. And that just, that logic fell apart over the, se- over the second half of the season. I feel like no one's talking about that. And I really do think that that's the major reason why this team fell into the gutter to the extent they did. Uh, certainly injuries to Hamhuis, Edler, Sutter, Hurt. Uh, but really, I th- when I look at it, I think the most costly injury this team sustained was the injury to Henrik Sedin, even though it only cost him you know, four or five games over the course of the full season. Right. Okay, so you mentioned Jim Benning earlier in an interview he did on TSN, and I, I wanted to talk to you about him a little bit because I know you've interacted sure. with him, and you might... You know, yeah. your opinion might be a little biased here because you had personal conversations. He's, 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 he's a, a lovely guy. I'll, t- a lovely I'll, guy. I'll, I'll tell a story. When I, when, I, when I got back from Vancouver, or I got back from Toronto to Vancouver um, at the end of the All-Star break, and you know, Jim Benning was discussing the Brandon Prust waiver thing, and the TV cameras, the bright lights of the TV cameras move on, the radio mics move on, and it's you know me, Botchford, and maybe a couple other print guys. And Jim stops and he goes, let me ask you guys a question like, Drance, when are you moving out here? Like, what's going on? And I explained to him, you know, that I've got my girlfriend in Toronto who I need to keep happy. Jim, like, puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like, there are things that are more important than the game. Right? And it's just like, <laughs> you're the nicest guy. You know? So, so yeah, that does color your... Right. I don't think it colors my work. Yes. But it certainly does color your personal opinion. Like, I think he's a genuinely... Uh, you know, thoughtful human being. And, and I do think that he's a good scout. I do think he's got a good hockey mind. I think certainly what I'd say is that the asset management side and yes. some of the, as NHL management teams are becoming more sophisticated league-wide, we've sort of seen a little bit of an inverse movement in Vancouver, uh, certainly from the Gilman-Gillis era to, you know, where we are now, losing multiple players on waivers and, right. you know, certainly mistiming a variety of contract extensions yes. over the last year. So, I mean, all that stuff definitely hasn't done him any favors, but I have this theory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that I think if he was more of a slick public speaker, a lot of this stuff would, you know, be lost over a little bit more. But the fact that he sort of, like, puts his foot in his own mouth sometimes when he goes on radio or on TV, and he's just not a, I don't know, he's just not a great sort of a spin master. Like, he, he has a tough time sort of, even if there's really kind of well thought out thought process going on in his head of why he did these moves he sort of has trouble relaying it to fans and and media and i feel like that can sort of sometimes get him into a little bit of trouble which isn't necessarily gonna you know hurt him doing his job when he's speaking off the record with other gms and making Mm -hmm. moves but i think sort of public perception of him can get clouded a little bit by the fact that when you listen to him speak you're like wait what what the hell did he just say like i I don't even know what what happened yeah well so one thing I'd point out, though, is I think Vancouver is a particularly difficult market for a GM. Hmm. You know, certainly he's not Treliving, for example, in Calgary, who right. speaks and you're just like, well, that's that guy sounds mm-hmm. really smart. But, you know, I, I do think even a guy like Ken Holland would run into trouble in Vancouver. I mean, Ken Holland's got that staccato, you know, speaks really quickly and, and he's sort of prone. He's a smart guy, but he's prone to sort of similarly talking himself in a circle a bit and, and getting himself into some trouble. The difference is is that in Detroit, I feel like they don't, you know, there's not four or five different blog outlets posting the entire transcription. There's not, you know, Taj1944 just going ham on his Twitter feed. Right. And, you know, you you think about Gillis, right? Gillis was a very, very good public speaker. And some of the funnest things about listening to Gillis on the radio was when news broke and Gillis had to react to it in real time, right? right? Like, I remember he was on TSN 1040 when the Columbus Blue Jackets traded for Jeff Carter. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Carter and Nash, that sounds great, doesn't it? And Gillis says, there's not enough pucks to go around. Right? <laughs> it's like, exactly, he was dead right. They're right. both volume shooters. Right. So 
uh, you know, but even him toward the end of his tenure, people were saying, well, you know, Gillis's public persona really didn't do him any favors right. in Vancouver. Nonis similarly was very slick. Like I remember Mini him, Berkey? Mini Berkey, he was, yeah. he was super slick. Like I remember him breaking down the David Clarkson deal yeah. and I was like, man, maybe, da- maybe Dave Nonis makes sense staying in this front office because he's so good at explaining moves, right. uh, regardless of whether or not he had a hand in them. And, you know, similarly, he was criticized widely for his the way that he addressed the public toward the end of his tenure in Vancouver. And Brian Burke, who is the best person to put a mic in front of in the entire sport, you know, similarly ran into some trouble toward the end of his tenure, even though he was widely, you know, his persona was certainly widely uh, admired in the Vancouver market. So I do think there are some particular difficulties about this marketplace, but I also think some of Jim Benning's particular weaknesses and, and certainly public speaking and general media presentation is among them, though he's improved a lot, I think, over his two years here. Uh, you know, I, I think it's not that's that in particular is not a great fit. Right. But it, but it helps that he has Linden, right? Like yes. he has Trevor Linden, who if you're selling a long rebuild in Vancouver or a pair of contacts or a gym membership, yeah. uh, you know, Trevor Linden is the ultimate front man that right. you could have out and ha- out have in this market. He's the only guy I think who can genuinely sell patience. And, you know, one, one other thing is the Canucks in the Gillis era really made other members of the organization available a fair bit. Like Gilman right. was pretty had a had a somewhat significant public profile. Even Lauren Hanning was more likely to speak to the media than right. certainly the likes of John Weisbrod now. And so, you know, I do wonder if they might want to, you know, cushion uh, Jim a little bit a little bit more by perhaps making more people uh, available within the organization because certainly that was the case. Uh, under the Gillis regime, and I, I wonder if that's part of the reason we remember their media presentation as being perhaps so polished. Right. Well, I also wonder, and I don't mean to turn this into sort of defending Jim Benning, because as we mentioned, he has certainly made his fair share of personnel moves that warrant questioning and wondering whether he's the man for the job. But there are a bunch of circumstances, as you mentioned, and one of them is sort of this idea that was going on in the middle of the season about ownership meddling. Do you think there's actually anything to that? Or do you think it's just one of those things where it happens really for most teams and it just got blown up here because it's Vancouver? You know, that's hard to say. I yeah. mean, the the back channel stories of ownership meddling in Vancouver, those are the stuff of legends. Right. And the fact is, is that, you know, I have to be careful about what I say because of what I can actually verify. <laughs> no one listens right? to this thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just, you know, you, uh, I, I, I tend to believe that there's an element to which that existed, certainly under the previous regime. Right. Um, I tend to see a lot of things that the Canucks do through that lens. I think you can't ignore that possibility if you're trying to actually put your finger on what's going on with this club. Um, you know, I think, for example, when Linden went out front on, you know, got told Elliot Friedman, made sure that it was a centerpiece of the headlines uh, on hockey night in Canada that Willie Desjardins was staying. Right. You know, I think it's hard to understand that decision outside the context, perhaps of, of a, of a line in the sand or whatever being drawn, which was widely suggested. So, you know, I, I'm sure it's an influence. I'm sure managing up is a thing that all NHL GMs have to be wary of. And, and certainly that's probably true in Vancouver too. Right. Uh, you know, I don't have the hard information yes. to really go blasting in on it. Right. So, you know, I want to be very cautious about it. But do I think it's a factor here? Like, almost certainly. Okay. Yeah, let's move, let's move on. Then. Um, okay, so 
I want to talk a little bit about this gold plan, which came up recently because Shane Doan started talking about it, but really it's something that was sort of brought up years ago. But it's interesting because I think it really applies to the Canucks because if you go on on Twitter during their game days, I mean, when they beat the three California teams in a row last week, it was like people were just freaking out. You'd think like the worst thing ever happened and this team just won three games against three other really good hockey teams. And it is weird, right? Because in, in a sense, I definitely agree with all those fans. Like it makes sense if you're rooting for a team or if you're building this team at this point if you're not going to make the playoffs or make a run you really you're incentivized to lose because you increase your chances of getting an an elite talent that could make a difference for you in the future but that's a weird spot to be in because it's like you know if it goes very counterintuitive to the reason why you're actually even playing the game in the first place so i don't know like what do you think the solution is there so first of all i despise the incentives at play um i'm someone who has a genuine distaste for management tanking um you know all apologies to tim murray and and a bunch of others who've written the book and i think that's the wisest course of action the way the league is set up if you're looking at this rationally intentionally losing the way that you know certain teams um in buffalo and toronto have done i think is the wisest approach like i think that's the place that you're gonna land elite talent elite talent wins championships if you're in this to win you lose if you're not close. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on board with that, but I, but I have a distaste for it. And I think the reaction that you've seen from Canucks fans on Twitter over the past week, uh, you know, is a good distillation of that. I think the product suffers when fans are actively rooting against the team that they usually support. I think that's right. just a poisonous atmosphere for everyone. Right. And I I'm glad you didn't use the word culture. <laughs> no, I, I just think it diminishes the product. Like right. speaking just from a sports entertainment product right. standpoint, like I just, don't understand why the NHL yeah. would ever want, you know, some of their like most loyal, diehard, obsessed fans actively rooting against the team that they've spent 30 years cheering for. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think they got to do something. I mean, I, I just think it's a mess every year. It doesn't matter which team's involved. It's not about the Canucks situation in particular. This is just a the incentives suck. They're perverse right. and they diminish the product. And so, you know, I like Shane Doan's solution somewhat. I still think it gives a little too much precedence to the bad teams, right? But at least it gives fans an, a, a reason to root for winning. The uh, my favorite solution is the NBA's the fixed wheel, wheel the proposal. Wheel, yeah, the Zach Lowe's thing. I love yeah, that. And yeah. the reason I love that is, you know, you look at to bring this around to the Canucks. They've never had a first overall draft pick. Like I like the idea that a first overall draft pick is like a weapon in your arsenal that you get once every 30 years, right. but it's that valuable. Right. And I love the idea of like trades, you know, a contending team trading a really high pick. Yeah. You know, that would be massive news right. in, in a world where there was a sort of a fixed draft pick standings or a 30 year cycle. Uh, so I, I'm a huge fan of that proposal. I'd love to see something like that. I think that would change the game for the better. What are the counterpoints against it? I guess the, ca- the, I think the biggest counterpoint against it is how do you implement it, right? Because right. no one wants, you know, no bad team wants that to be implemented in the year that they're They're going to get the first pick and then they don't <laughs> so, get it, yeah. You know, right. so, I, I mean, maybe you, maybe you do one last thing and set it on a fixed wheel for 30 years right. based on the finish of, um, you know, one season or right. whatever, and you make it fair based on how it flows over right. the next decade, but... I think that's the biggest, I think the implementation of it is near impossible, well, but it's the way to do it. It's the fairest way to do it. If you're going to keep the draft, maybe the next time they, uh, have a lock miss, miss a season because of a lockout. Maybe they can, uh, there you go. Fine the opportunity. Video. I think they're going to have an opportunity even, pretty soon. Though even when that happens, they generally don't miss the draft, right? Oh yeah. That's, a good that's point. uh yeah. key to keep in mind. Yeah. They got to do something. It's so weird, right? Like it's, 
I think it's pretty comical since I don't have any sort of investment with the team or right. anything like that. But it just like it seems very weird and counterintuitive, and I, I don't understand, as you said, how the NHL can look at this and be like, "Oh, this is a good thing." It's like, <laughs> yeah. bad, like any press is good press. It's like, no, not really in this case. And really, this has been going on for months. Like yeah. in Vancouver, it's really become pronounced over the last three weeks. Right. But if you look back two or three months, like smart Canucks fans have been plotting out how this team, this team's demise and like how it can work out favorably and tracking the results of Columbus and Buffalo more closely than they are right. Vancouver's division rivals since like February. Yeah. And I, you know, I just don't see how that's good. I don't see how having your fans behave that way yeah. helps the league or helps the member of teams at all. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your, uh, your ballot? Cause I know that you can vote on the awards this year. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know, I know you can't actually kind of give away all, no, of, I, all I, the secrets, but we I can can't probably lay bit. out my whole ballot. And, and, you know, to be honest, I haven't done all my research on it yet. I'm uh, right. anything I say here is subject to change as I right. continue to review the, the facts and consider in my head some of the games that I watched, but yeah, I got my ballot today and I think it's going to, it's going to be an interesting one. I'm wrestling with a lot of different choices here. Mm. So, okay, before we get into the actual details of it, you're going to, I'm assuming you're a stand-up guy, you're going to release how you voted after you're actually allowed to, right? Yeah, I did that last year at NHLnumbers.com and I'd imagine I'll do it again. Uh, somewhere at the Nation Network. How are we? It's 2016. How are we not at the point where everyone is obligated to do so? Like it's, uh, you know, I don't understand it. You do though end up publishing your ballot, right? And then it's like you're the only guy who gave Brian Campbell a vote for Norris, right? right. <laughs> you're just yeah. like, oh, well, that sucks. Yeah. Well, I was looking last year. It's like Dennis Wyman got like four fifth place votes or something. It's okay. Like, well, then that makes four me feel... people to think Dennis Wyman was the fifth best defense. That makes me feel way better because I had Brian Campbell. I think I was the only person who gave Brian Campbell a Norris vote, and I was the only person who gave Miku Koivu a Selkie vote. Mm. And I was just... Not that I regret those decisions. I think those were justifiable. I argued for them. Um, Those make sense to me, and I do it exactly the same. But you do feel a little bit exposed, especially as a first-time voter, when you realize that you're the only guy who voted for a couple of players. That's good, though. I mean, I understand people can sometimes, you know, take it way overboard and take the stuff way too seriously. But, like, you do have some sense of sort of obligation like you're this this stuff is important in the sense that a lot of guys have it built in their contract incentives for example right if he finishes like top five in the voting of a right. certain award he gets a bonus kicked in like it's this isn't just like random throwaway stuff no. where it's like no one's ever going to discuss it again and no. i think i don't have a vote myself but if i did um and this applies to the calder this year i would approach voting in terms of i view it as a time capsule where mm-hmm. if you look back at it five years from now i want to look back and be like who was the best rookie who was the, the most valuable player? Who was the best defenseman? Right. So it actually, of course, you can't predict how five years from now any of these decisions might, might wind up looking stupid because of injuries or, mm-hmm. you know, falling off or whatnot. But, like, you look back and it's like the year Barrett Jackman won the Rookie of the Year. It's like, what the hell happened there, right? It's like... You do feel that sense of obligation and you also feel this sense of obligation that this isn't your, like, it is your rewards ballot and you need to use your judgment. But, for example, you know, if I was defining the rules for the Calder... Right. Artemi Panarin wouldn't be, yes. uh, Panarin, excuse me, would not be eligible. I mean, right. this is not a rookie in any true sense. This right. is a seasoned professional who just hasn't played in the NHL right. before. So, you know, he wouldn't be considered, but I'm not going to hold that against him in making my Calder vote because that's not how the rules are. Right. Uh, you, no matter how I might view it personally. Um, and, you know, it's the same thing with the, you know, the Norris, right? People want defensive play. 
the, the, the language is the best defense player, right? right? It's not even defenseman. It's defense player right. is the, the specific criteria. And I think you do have to include, you know, defensive, the, the quality of a guy's defensive play has to be considered strongly when we're talking about a defenseman. But it's also not a best defensive defenseman award. It right. is the best player who plays defense, right. you know? And so from my perspective, that means points matter an awful lot. And yes. it's not just, fun. it's not okay to just say, well, this guy's, you know, 20% better at defense, even though he's 40% less productive offensively, but defense is what we were prioritizing. This is about the best, a holistic view of who's the best player who plays that position. Well, especially since there isn't like one sort of uh, agreed upon criteria for what how we're defining defense right and that makes sense because there isn't just one way to play it right like for offense you can look at a guy's goal totals or point totals or what he means to his team in that regard and easily define it but like i think people sometimes struggle grasping that sometimes the best defense is a good offense like if you have the puck the other team doesn't and that you need to take that into account right like a guy might be in a liability in his own zone but if he's rarely having to play in his own zone like you should take that into account as well yeah well and you know i think uh, not to keep subtweeting eric carlson but uh (laughs) (laughs) when uh when you look at his defensive game i just don't buy that he's a liability in his own end anyway he was like four years ago yeah right it's like for sure it's it's changed but his defensive impact is significant now now it's not as significant as drew doughty's i think drew doughty is an appreciably better defensive player but then you look at the offensive side of the puck and you know we're not talking about um apples and oranges here right we're we're talking about you know, grapes versus champagne. Yes. And, you know, I look at Drew Doughty's, uh, he's the third most productive power play goal scorer this season. That that factors into any consideration of his offensive value. But at even strength, he's produced at roughly the same rate as Chris Tanev, right? Yes. And it's hard to overlook that when Eric Carlson's having a historic yes. uh, offensive season. And when their two-way impact looked at holistically, right, is similar. I mm-hmm. mean, they are, Drew Doughty's slightly better defensively. But in terms of their overall two-way impact, they're pretty similar. And it's hard for me to overlook that, too. I think uh, the Selkie's interesting because for years it was the award. It was like the one-year too-late award where it was like, right. they would just give it to the guy like who's actually the best. Yeah, the Ryan Kessler wins it the year after the Canucks get Manny Malhotra, which yeah. frees Kessler up yeah. from playing defense. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's another one of those things, right, where it's like, a Paul Gostad, not that he would should deserve being not nominated for the Selkie, but it's like a guy like that is never even going to get any sort of consideration for right. this because he doesn't have the requisite point totals to do so, right? And right. in theory, that's like a weird way to approach viewing this award, but it's it just sort of the nature of the beast, I guess. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It is a two way award. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be really hard for us to ever have uh, Felix Hernandez of the Sel- Selkie Trophy, right? Felix right. Hernandez won. The Cy Young with a 500 record in baseball, right? Because you know their stats are a little bit more well developed, and his overall impact beyond that record was clearly the best in the American League that year. But you know, I don't think we're ever going to see a 25 point player win the Selkie, uh, even though it's you know supposed to be awarded to the forward who best excels in the defensive aspects of the game. It really is a two way player award, yeah. and that's why I think you'll see Kopitar and Taves get nominated again. Even though they don't play the type of, you know, shut down, uh, heavy diet of defensive zone starts role that guys like Brandon Dubinsky and David Backus and, you know, Patrice Bergeron, for example, uh, Sean Couturier, those sort of players all hold down, Ryan Kessler too, hold down that sort of uh, a deployment lean that's also defensive that, you know, 
Taves and Kopitar don't, partly because their teams just are always starting in the, the opposite yeah. end of the rink. But, you know, so I think they'll get nominated. I think that'll be them and Bergeron. I don't know quite yet where they figure into my ballot. I think the, the most interesting discussions I'm having internally about the Selkie are, you know, Sean Couturier, in my opinion, yes. is a very strong candidate this year. Uh, the only problem is that he has the sort of durability concerns. And, right. I, you know, that's going to be the same issue that I grapple with in voting for the Calder uh, right. with McDavid and Ghost versus, uh, you know, Panarin. Um, and so figuring out how specifically I want to weight that part of it, how much I value durability effectively, I think that's going to be the most interesting thing to sort of figure out, especially for down votes on the Selkie. Well, I, I think that's fair, right? Like, you're rewarding the guy for the season he had and a guy that played nearly 80 games for his team is more valuable than a guy that played 60 right even if it's sometimes you can't control injuries it's a whole lot of luck involved like that's just part of the part of the award yeah for sure Uh, and you know i i value durability so much in assessing players you know for example realizing that mark andre Fleury might only be an average starter but he's an average starter who really will give you 65 games a year you know that sort of changed my whole perspective about his value to a team and and so you know, I've come to value that durability as a skill and I've come to value that so much that, you know, then sort of getting away from that and making my awards vote and just going for true talent or quality of form yeah. uh, seems a little bit hypocritical. So, I, you know, I haven't gotten I haven't finished wrestling with that. I'll probably take the full week uh, before submitting. Uh, what do you what are you thinking about for the Jack Adams? Are you just sorting by PDO and picking the top guy? Or? <laughs> so I don't vote on Jack Adams. Oh. That's the broadcasters. Oh, there we yeah, go. yeah. So I'm sure that'll be handled with uh, the utmost respect <laughs> and dedication. Um, I, I'd like Hackstall. I think Hackstall yeah. should be a strong candidate. You think he'll smile if he gets that award? I uh, no, no, I don't. I think another guy is Barry Trotz, who's done a great job in Washington, and and it was Bob McKenzie that wrote an article recently about how the fellow coaches, you know, bestowed him with that honor of of being the best coach in the league this year. And I mean, I'm sure that means something that getting that from his peers, and it makes sense that the Caps have been very very good this year. And I don't know, it's it's weird because I think like in theory he probably should, like could have won it last year. Like I feel like that's what right. he did the heavy lifting right like it was like put it all into place and then this year it just all came together yeah and you know you you upgrade by two four two top six forwards effectively right over the over the summer uh but they did sort of deal ably with a variety of injuries Uh, they also benefited a ton from good goaltending i mean yeah you know as much as uh as much as anyone else i mean mike sullivan right would have to be a strong contender and, I don't know about his durability, though. I mean, he just, he just, he just, <laughs> he just wasn't there for the 82 games. games. <laughs> and, uh, and so the other guy I think, you know, I, I personally, if I was a broadcaster, would think of uh, long and hard as a strong candidate. It's Bruce Boudreaux. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about the start that they got off to and how remarkable it is, not that he deserves credit for it as much as Bob Murray does, but the that he managed to withstand that, you know, just effectively getting urinated on by the hockey gods yes. for solidly four weeks and managed to survive that. They revamped their system. They became a trap team and now they're sort of starting to score again. Uh, you know, and I think they're probably better for it because they really did reconsider some of the ways they played. And that's often been the criticism of Boudreaux's system is what system, right? Yep. Is that, you know, there's a lot of just go for it. Right. And, you know, I think they're not playing that way now. And you look at that decor. I mean, I think Anaheim's a, going to be really dangerous in the playoffs i think what bruce Boudreaux did this season deserves some recognition well especially since we can like tangibly point to the fact that they made those changes like right. they, he made actual changes we can point to and be like listen like they realized that things weren't going their way and if they continued down this path yeah. he'd probably get fired and they wouldn't make the playoffs and 
they did something about it. And yeah. coaches very rarely do that. Like you see a guy like Michelle Terrian, for example, and there's only so much you could do. Like Carey Price is so mm-hmm. valuable to that team, but he just like, you know, just kept doing the same thing and didn't decide to alter his game plan at all. And there's something to be said for realizing when you need to ch- change what's not working. Yeah, and Carey Price is a good example of the durability thing working in, in reverse, right? It's like, he didn't play this season, and as a result, we sort of now know that he really is the most valuable player in right. hockey. So maybe he should be considered. He won't, but. <laughs> um, all right. Before we get out of here, let's sort of talk about a kind of big picture general topic because I get a lot of emails and tweets about this. Sure. And I think you're the perfect person to talk to, talk about this with because I consider you the John Calipari of hockey blogging where you just <laughs> – you run such a tight ship of bringing in high, bringing in recruits, yeah. giving them a year or two of really of just molding their games and then sending them out there to the pros. And yeah, well, I, I like when I get to keep them for a few years, <laughs> and you know, once they're seniors and they really know your offense, as opposed to those sort of swashbuckling one and done guys like yes. you, yes, who uh, <laughs> came in, crushed the tournament, and then uh, out. <laughs> well, we should say, I mean, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you gave me my first chance in this industry where I was kind of doing my own independent blog and you gave me a chance to write for Canucks Army and kind of took off from there. And I get a lot of questions being like, what would you recommend as sort of your path to getting into this industry? What, or do you have any tips or anything like that? And I usually just go with the same. You just, the reps are the most important thing. Like you, not, there's nothing that can replace that, but I don't know. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you think to that question? Yeah, I mean, let me return your compliment by complimenting you. I think you're actually the perfect person to ask because when I look at what you did at Canucks Army and you you wrote there, you know, a couple, two, two probably weekly mm-hmm. for your first year there and your second year there, I got a job with the score and you were my choice to be the managing editor. And I really left you to your own devices, like probably more than I should have. Right. Uh, but you just excelled. You just wrote every day. You just became a workhorse. You started doing stuff for the sporting news. You were always looking for other opportunities to branch out. And you really took advantage of, you know, an opportunity that wasn't all roses. But right. you ju- you were just like, it doesn't matter that there's some negative things that come here. I'm just going to build my own show. And, and you did a great job. And it was recognized and you went on to grip better opportunities. Um, and then I look at what you've done with this PDO cast and I think it's the exact same thing, right? You were looking to get back in the game and you were just like, I'm just going to build my own thing and really improve at this one area. So first you got really good at writing and now you've become, you know, as a, a multimedia re- superstar, re- multimedia and as a regular listener, right. I mean, you're I said that uh, tongue in cheek, by the way. <laughs> no, of course, but your ability to guide conversations now versus when, you know, this started out. Right. Uh, in September or October, uh, you know, it's grown exponentially. So I think you're right. Those those reps, just building something and just being laser focused and disciplined in, you know, improving yourself while also trying to build a property. I mean, that's indispensable. I think that's way more valuable than a journalism degree these days. Yes. I think, you know, you got you got it. People don't pay for content anymore. They pay for audience. So it's like build your audience, improve, get better and be a little bit political about how you do things. Don't don't be slamming everyone and and you know acting the fool on Twitter. You you really do have to conduct yourself with a, a modicum of professionalism if you're going to be taken seriously. So those would sort of be my major things that I'd say, tell young journalists about. Well, listen, and I, I mean to your latter to your last point about kind of conducting yourself professionally. I mean I. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Like I starting out definitely took shots at people that were in higher positions than I was. And, and that, you know, that's, I think that's a natural thing where, um, you sort of 
want to get noticed right and 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 that's how twitter really works sometimes where right. where you say something to someone and hoping to get some sort of reaction from them and i guess you you definitely want to be respectful and not make it personal at the same time um i think it's okay to question when you know just because someone has a high position you don't necessarily need to automatically agree with what they say right? as long as you're right. being in a respectful manner it's perfectly okay to kind of question them and Absolutely. be like why do you think this way this is how i'm viewing yeah. it and start a conversation can i make a suggestion that's yes. that's my like favorite <laughs> tactful uh, entry point um you know and in my case i was a little bit lucky in that when i was coming up at canucks army i had cam on so i was always sort of the good cop mm. and the only time i really ever got into fights with people was when i thought they crossed the line with cam yeah. right like that was sort of the general um, Fisher point that sort of brought me into a variety of, uh, of Twitter loggerhead sort of battles with other media members. But yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that that's crucial. That said, you know, especially this like advanced stats hockey blogosphere was really built on ruthlessly ripping apart uh, yes. other people's work. I mean, that was, that, yeah. yeah, that was the, that was at the heart of a lot of what we did. So you know, I think it depends partly on your goals too, right? If you're really trying to make your name as an analyst and maybe you want to work for an NHL team, you probably got to go in there and break some jaws. Yeah. If you're looking to be media, I'd say you probably have to go in and act a little bit more conscientiously and, and deferentially toward a variety of people. Right. And you have to be ready for a lot of uh, very unglamorous uh, months and years, right? Oh, yeah. Because you it's just like, work. it's not one of the, like, there's, I'm sure there's thousands, if not millions of people out there that are like, I could do as good of a job as this guy. Like, just give me a chance. It's like, well. That, the thing with media, though, is everyone really believes that. Like, yeah. you always, you know, and I, I mean, to some extent, we both did because we wouldn't, you know, be doing what we were doing, what we we're doing if we didn't. But, you know, you, you read all this hockey right and you're like, I could do a better job yeah. than that. And then you get into the room and you're like, oh, this is hard. Like, the actual skill set required to develop sources and gather quotes. I mean, that's not an easy thing. That's not something you can come off the street and be good at. It takes right. work. You actually have to work at that. And then, you know, say you get on TV or say you get on the radio and then you realize, oh, you know, it's easy to talk in the bar about hockey all the time, yeah. but this is actually difficult being focused, being on time. Um, you know, that stuff's not easy. And then television, same thing. You know, you're like, oh, I could easily, like, that's a stupid point about culture. I could do a way better job. And then you get on and the lights go on and you freeze. And it's tough. I mean, it's, it's every step, every time I've seen behind the curtain, I've realized how difficult um, every person's job is. So, but I do think there's a natural inclination. Everyone believes they can do a better job than you when you're in media. I mean, well, that's just how it is. Well, when you flew into Vancouver from Toronto, you were never like, I could fly this plane better than this pilot. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be no, weird if you thought that way. It would be super strange <laughs> if you thought that way. Um, but it, I, I've had that with this podcast where uh, it was easy when no one was listening, when like my mom and my best friends were right. listening, where it was like, I can say whatever I want, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, once I started realizing that, not to like, you know, take this stuff too seriously, but when I started seeing people like starting message board threads or, or even blog posts with right. like, this was said on the Hockey PDO cast, I was like, oh crap, I actually sort of need to like kind of pay attention to what I'm saying. And I'm not complaining at all because that challenges you to, you know, stay on top of your game rather than coming on here and wasting 40 minutes of, of my time, my guest time and my listeners time. I'm just kind of shooting the shit about nothing. We actually right. sort of need to be focused on what you're talking about. Yeah, no, and and it's a it's a, especially the making a conversation flow, jumping from point A to point B in a focused manner. Uh, something you you know this podcast has become exceptionally good at. Mm. I think that's a really difficult skill, and you know everyone wants to talk forever, and you can't in media, right? You've got to be you've got to be fast, you've got to be repetitive, uh, and uh, 
and you've got to be so laser point focused on the point you're making. And, you know, you've done a really good job of making, you know, a, an esoteric podcast, right? Because the topic that you're, the subject matter you're often discussing is extremely niche, but I think you've done a really good job of making that accessible and packaging it in such a way that it's not, you know, a, a calculus professor droning on, except when you have me yes. on, of course. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, man. Anytime, it was a lot of man. fun. Uh, a pleasure. Before we get out of here, we should probably plug the, uh, the Hockey Analytics yeah. Conference. It's happening this weekend. It is happening in Vancouver at uh, Simon Fraser University. Mm. Canucks Army is putting I'm on. A, I'm, an, I'm an alumnus there. You're an alumnus. Yeah. Oh, perfect. My and jersey a, should be hanging well, up under the rafters. It's an SFU and Canucks Army um, you know, joint production. So you're really a dual alumnus yes. for, for the Vancouver Hockey Analytics panel. Uh, follow Van Hack on Twitter. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting nuggets. I'll be on a media panel with uh, Jason Botchford, David Ebner, and a mystery host. Mm. And uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but it'll be a, it'll a good way to sort of celebrate the end of the season yeah. and discuss a lot of advancements in analytics. And, you know, Canucks Army has produced a lot of talent over the years. I think a lot of people will be there who've you know come through the system over the years so i'm excited to get us all back together and and see everyone i think it'll be a lot of fun the kentucky of hockey blogging absolutely um (laughs) all right people can follow you on twitter at thomas drance and uh where can they read your work read my work at sportsnet.ca and also at the nation network uh, really across the platform but mostly canucksarmy.com cool man well we'll uh we'll make sure to have you back on sometime soon anytime man cheers the Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.